Welcome to Nobody Told Me. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. Have you ever been part of a team or an organization that accomplished amazing things? Or have you been part of a team or a group that just couldn't get its act together? What is it about the culture in some organizations that makes them toxic? And why does the culture in other groups lead to happiness and success? For the answers to those questions, we turn to best-selling author Daniel Coyle, whose latest book is called The Culture Code, The Secrets of Highly Successful Groups. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, Jan and Laura. It's really fun to be with you. The Culture Code is about the science of successful groups, how to build cohesive, high-performing culture. How did you become interested in that? You know, maybe it was growing up in a in a in a fun family. Um, maybe it was being part of some dysfunctional ones. But actually, I can trace it to a a single moment. I was I was visiting this Russian tennis club. I was investigating a book on individual talent, and there was a new player who walked onto the court. And I saw the coach walk over to that player and lean down. The kid was about eight year old, a new tennis player, and this is a place that produced champions. And um, said, I'm glad you're here, and said, will you do something for me? She asked the little girl, and the little girl nodded, and she said, the teacher said, catch this ball, and she tossed her the ball, and the little girl caught it. And it was like this incredible moment that had nothing to do with information or skill. It had everything to do with human connection. You know, that girl went from being an outsider to feeling connected to this family. And that's what got me interested in this, because we've all had that experience of being in a place. Maybe it's a school Maybe it's a family, maybe it's a restaurant, maybe it's a business, maybe it's a team that's got that thing, you know, that chemistry, that magical connection. And when you're around it, you can, it feels like magic. But when you really dig into the science of it, it's not magic. It's not magic at all. In fact, it's kind of wired into our brains to be able to do it. So um, I wrote a book about kind of how that happens. So what are so many of these companies doing wrong with building culture? I think a lot of it is that they're not paying attention to the way that we're really built. Um, you know, a lot of in, in the business world, there's a lot of it is built around around hierarchy. And yet, when you look at how we're built, we really we really don't start to function uh, as a team until we feel really safe and connected. And so, the institutions of business are not built to provide that. Um, but businesses that do, and groups that do, and I spent five years visiting places like Navy SEAL Team 6 and Pixar and the San Antonio Spurs and Zappos and other high-performing cultures, they all really are aligned. They've aligned their behaviors with the way the brain is wired. I mean, they deliver a really clear signal of safety right at the beginning of relationships, right at the be- at threshold moments, these key moments. When you get hired at Pixar, you walk into a room and somebody says, whatever you did before, actually the president says, he says, whatever you did before, you're a movie maker now. We need you to make our films better. Then they go to a meeting every day. They have a meeting where anybody, they all watch footage of what they produced the day before. You produce a few seconds of animation each day at Pixar. And anybody in the company can speak up and make an improvement. They call it plussing. So it's not just like the communication of the words. It's the behaviors. It is it is the behaviors that, that create that sense of connection and safety. And the other thing that they don't get, I guess that's one thing, the safety thing. The other thing that businesses don't get is the role of vulnerability. Um, to To really build trust, you have to be vulnerable together. And yet there's so much about life and, and modern business where you're meant to, you're sort of tipped to hide your vulnerabilities and not tell the truth. And in most workplaces, everybody has a secret second job kind of maintaining their status in the organization. And good groups take that away by creating what are called vulnerability loops, where groups of people circle up 
and have really hard conversations about what's really happening. They confess weaknesses. They admit problems. Um, they get real. And these conversations are really hard uh, to have, but they're incredibly powerful because that that's what builds the connection and the trust and the cohesion. And can you tell us a little bit about what Ed Catmull, the president and co-founder of Pixar, said to his engineers that gave them goosebumps even 10 years after they were told this? Yeah, it was so cool, you know, because it really gets into this question of vulnerability. You know, I was I was out at Google and there was an engineer who told this story. He had worked at Pixar 15 years before and and the boss, the big boss, Ed Catmull, the co-founder, the guy who founded the business with Steve Jobs, came up and watched this group of young engineers working. And of course, you know, like you do when the boss is watching you, you get a little nervous, right? And at the end, Catmull said something. He said, hey, when you guys are done, will you come up to my office and teach me that? And they did. They went up and they taught him this, which it's this, it was this incredible moment that the guy was, when he was telling me this, he was still getting the goosebumps because that's the kind of signal. And it's, it's not magic. It's not magic. It's, it's, it's intentional, disciplined vulnerability where the leader is saying, Hey, I want to learn something. And, and that was one of the takeaways that I, that I, that I got from this. There's actually a little, little tip in the book called the, the two line email. You know, when you, when you send an email to everybody you work with, that says, Hey, tell me one thing you want me to keep doing and one thing you want me to stop doing. And you're sending that same Ed Catmull signal, which is like, Hey, tell me the truth. I want to learn. I'm not trying to preserve my status here. I'm trying to get better with you. But how do you know if you're in a company? If that will be received well, if you want to tell the boss, hey, this is what you, you know, he says he wants to know what he can do to improve, but does he really? How do you know that? Yeah, you can know that through their behavior. You know that through their behavior. And that that really you're speaking to a big challenge, which is how do you lead from the middle on this stuff? You know, it's one thing to be the boss and to be able to say, I can send that signal and I'm I'm safe to do it. But if you're not sure of your landscape and, and really the way to approach that is, is a couple of things. The first is to realize that the culture that matters is probably within the 15 feet of your desk. You know, you culture is everything that happens in that 15 feet and you can be in control of that. And the second thing to remember is that it is possible to manage up, but you have to do it kind of obliquely. You have to um, be subtle. You have to kind of find side doors in. Um, yeah, you probably can't uh, if, you're, if your boss isn't the kind of person to take that kind of thing lightly. But maybe what you can do is is send some articles about businesses that are in a parallel world as yours that are doing things uh, according to ways that you might admire. So share things through sharing and exposure and filling people's windshields with good examples. You can have an impact. I feel like successful teams are a great way to learn more about successful cultures. And I don't think there's a better example than the Golden State Warriors. And you had this fantastic blog post about the relationship between Steve Kerr and Steph Curry and an interaction that they had. It was like a two minute interaction, I think, that you broke down. What can we learn from that really brief example? I mean, they've done, they've, they've done so much. It's such a great, they have such a great uh, system for doing that. But I think a, a lot of it has to do with the, with the type of leadership that Steve Kerr brings, which is exactly in line with the kind of leadership I saw at a lot many of the places I visited. It's the opposite of toxic masculinity. I mean, these are people who are who admit they don't have all the answers and who are constantly seeking feedback and constantly expressing their connection uh, with with the people they work with. There was a moment during that during that blog that video that you mentioned that I blog that I wrote a blog post about where um, you know Curry had had a terrible game 
he had he had missed all of these shots and and he had he had he had really you know missed missed far more than he had made and and Kerr walked him through all the different positive ways that he impacted the team and then he finished by saying um you know go on my son he said something like that like go get him <laughs> and it was just this un this delight that he had and and I saw that delight where it was like they were really dealing with each other as whole as whole people and and expressing that kind of enthusiasm and really just raw excitement over being together. And and that's something that you see on, on great teams. It was not judgmental. It was and it was not just in the words. It was in his body language. It was in his expression. It was in everything. And I think typically we tend to kind of underrate how powerful some of those simple signals can be. You also looked at Navy SEALs Team 6, and I'm wondering what you learned from from that study about the culture in that organization. Yeah, I spent time with a guy named Dave Cooper who trained the troops that got bin Laden, and he told me something that really surprised me. You know, we were sitting down and, 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 and getting to know each other, and, and he says this. He says, you know the four most important words a leader can say? And I go, well, no, no, I don't. I really <laughs> want to know those, Dave. Yeah. Please tell me. And he said... I screwed that up. Wow. And that really like, shocked me, you know, because I'm thinking Navy SEALs should be confident, like you should know what you're doing. Um, and yet, as he went on to explain, and as I went on to see in all the other places I visited, that expression of vulnerability gives permission for everyone else to tell the truth. Like, how can you get a group to do something if, if the leader isn't sending the signal, hey, it's safe to talk, to have hard truths here. And the way I'm going to show you that it's safe is I'm going to admit to what I'm bad at. And I'm going to tell you the truth about some weakness or screw up that I had. And it's such a simple signal, but one that I think we're, we're kind of tipped away from doing so often um, with, uh, with the habits of business and, and the habits of self-preservation that we have. And how do you encourage quiet people to talk more? You know, I think it's difficult, especially uh, for women to express vulnerability at times because of all the the abundant biases that we see in the workplace, um, especially gender biases. And one of the more effective ways, I think, to find ways to speak out is to really frame it around your learning, to be able to say, hey, I'm expressing this weakness, not just because I'm, I screwed up or because, I'm, because I don't have any idea what I'm doing, but because I want to learn. Kind of like Ed Catmull did in that office. You know, hey, when you guys are done with that, will you come teach me that? That's such a powerful thing to say um, and, and, and to share and to create a larger culture where it's, where it's really safe and normal um, to, to learn together. And, and if you're going to learn together, it means you've got you to talk about failure. You've got to talk about what you don't know. You've got to be aware of what you don't know. You've got to share what you don't know. So um, framing vulnerability around learning is a powerful way to do that. One thing you advise teams and companies to do is to get rid of brilliant jerks. Explain more about that and why. Well, when you look at the experiments, and there's some great ones I write about in the book, one called the bad apple experiment. When you put a jerk in a room of working people, their productivity goes down about 40%. And it's just the way we're wired, right? We get, and that is a clear signal that things are not safe in that group. If that kind of behavior is, is being, um, is being supported by the leadership. So to have a jerk being part of a group is an instant uh, damper on performance. And to understand how deep that goes is kind of the first step. Uh, because it really is all about creating the kind of environment where, where you do feel uh, connected and safe. Um, and, and to actually, the, the groups that I visited were, were ruthless. They had zero tolerance for bad apples. In fact, 
the San Antonio Spurs basketball team has has operationalized this. They have a a, a a little sheet of paper that they use to scout all the college players in the country, where they measure all their abilities and whether they should draft them or not. And at the bottom of that sheet of paper is a, is a box that says not a spur. And if that box is checked, it basically is the jerk box, right? If that right. box is checked, they will not draft that player no matter how good that player is. Wow. They, they don't care if it's the second coming of Michael Jordan, but they will not draft that player. That shows you how much they value that because they get, they understand that 40% uh, jerk cost. I was hearing Oprah talk about the culture at Harpo, and she was saying that all of the employees there have this same rhythm, and that makes them really successful. And I'm wondering what companies like Harpo are doing that are making their employees want to work 24-7 and want to work that much harder than a lot of employees who are just doing nine-to-five jobs, even though the company isn't theirs. You know what's kind of funny about that? We always think I, I, I would I, I don't know what they're doing. I've never looked into Harpo formally, but I can tell you that a lot of people who work at these kind of places, they're almost addicted to it. And and when you look at that from afar, you think, oh, that must be because it's so pleasant to work there and everybody's so nice. And actually, that's not true. Like in a lot of these places, the work is really hard. And what people are addicted to is that really, really hard fun of like solving hard problems with really smart people. And, and that is not, you know, when I started this project, I thought that I would get, I would be visiting cultures who had figured everything out and where everything was always easy and every answer was always yes. and Everyone was always smart and there were never any disagreements. And I really found out the opposite. Like in a lot of these places, what's addictive is kind of like the rigor with which they go about their business and how hard things are. Um, that ends up being its own sort of draw. And so I would say when they say they're on the same rhythm, it, it's almost like um, it's almost like a hard sport, you know, where you're constantly pushing yourself to the edge. And it's hard and it's fun and and there's nothing else like it. And so um, those places end up being not as nice as you might imagine, but uh, even more energized than you would imagine. Another uh, skill that you talk about in terms of culture making is to establish purpose. Tell us more about why that's important and how you go about doing it. You know, the human brain is a pretty distractible thing. And and so the thing that surprised me when I started visiting these places, um, I thought they would all have their purpose kind of silent, kind of engraved on their hearts, like in their guts. Like this is just, you know, we're not going to talk about what we do. We just do it. It turns out when you visit a really successful organization, they end up talking about themselves a lot. They end up kind of talking about they're, they have a lot of corny catchphrases and a lot of mantras that they repeat over and over again. And the, the SEALs are no exception. You know, it's funny. They have all these ways of describing their work. Like they say, we shoot, move, and communicate. Those are the three things we do. And uh, the only easy day was yesterday. And we're the silent professionals. And it's kind of funny because they, they talk a lot about how they're the silent professionals. You know, But they repeat those, those mantras over and over again. And at first, it was kind of strange. It, it didn't seem like it made sense. But when you really dig into the science behind it, what's happening is they're basically using these mantras as kind of like emotional GPS to help navigate toward what's important. There's, there's, you know, there's 10 things that you could work on in any team. There's 20 things you could work on in any team. What's the one that's most important? To locate it, to distill it into a mantra, and to repeat and, 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 and share those stories and mantras around are one of the most powerful things an organization can do. So it's like this process where they're they sort of dig their purpose out of the ground. Like, what do we really care about? They look and they reflect. And then they turn that reflection into 
sort of this this series of, of of billboards or signs or GPS signals, and then they spread those all around the company in artifacts and in and in sayings and in stories, a whole ecosystem of signaling that helps direct you toward true north, and and that kind of process I think is 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 incredibly powerful because like I said, there's there's a million things you could focus on, but to be really really clear, you know, to say what do we do? We shoot, we move, and we communicate. That's a hell of a thing. You know, that, right. that really sums up a lot. And any good organization should be able to be to sort of build its own mantra map. I'm curious to know more about the skills that combine to make an outstanding culture. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it, what I found with with a lot of the leaders, I mean, a lot of the leaders almost were communication athletes. You know, they were able to uh, kind of connect to people and and think of in terms of story and tell stories and never get tired of telling the same story. And they're almost like like a radio antenna, you know, broadcasting, not just in words, but in their behavior, all those signals of culture. Another another thing that they shared was like a keen attention to these threshold moments. Like when somebody walked into a room, good cultures responded by like really paying attention to that person and really greeting them, especially if it's somebody's first day. You know, they would always sort of make a really big deal about those threshold moments. Um, it's a whole bunch of skills, but you can sort of break it down to, all right, are they creating safety? Are they creating these vulnerability loops where they're really getting real with people? They're, they're being honest. And are they delivering um, this this clear sense of, of purpose over and over again. And we tend to regard those people as as kind of, you know, magical people. But when you look when you look deeper and when you X ray their skill set, um, it's 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 really a deep, ancient way of communicating by saying like, hey, you're safe with me. Hey, I'm telling you the truth. I want you to tell me the truth and here's where we're going. I found another finding of yours very interesting, the fact that unhealthy cultures often appear to be well-oiled machines when they're observed from a distance. Yeah, right. It's like, I, I think of it as the smoothness disease. Like, if you walk into a group and everybody is told, there's never any argument, and everybody always is in agreement, and everybody's always smiling and happy, that's actually not a great sign. The great cultures I walked in, you felt a higher level of conflict because they were, they wanted that conflict. They wanted to, you know, they didn't want just everybody to go along with whatever, wherever, where the wind was blowing. They wanted the best ideas to genuinely win and, and to, to figure out which best, what the best idea is in this day and age when things are moving so fast and when everybody's learning so much every month, every day, every year, you know, that takes some arguing. And so, you know, just like Cheryl Sandberg tells her people, she asks them, have you had a difficult conversation today? And that's, I think that's a really cool thing to ask people, you know, because that's a sign that your culture is healthy, not agreeing and going along and then later on saying, I don't think that's going to work. But actually having the, the guts and the, and the habit, really, it's almost like a, like, a, like a sport. Again, it's like this habit of being able to say, wait a minute, um, let's, let's talk about that. I, I, I don't think that's going to work. Let's, let's, let's see what, what the best idea is and work through it. So then how can you argue successfully and how can you say, no, I think that's a bad idea in a way that's not going to hurt the team's feelings? Well, it's it's more like the team has to develop a habit that that doesn't, it is going to hurt the team's feelings. I mean, you have these, these conversations, the root word of vulnerability is the Latin word vuln, which means wound. 
So like to really have vulnerable conversations, you have to experience that pain. And it sucks. Like the, the Navy SEALs do this meeting called an AAR after every single mission or every training. And they circle up and they talk about what went wrong, what went right, and what they're going to do differently next time. And it's a genius meeting. It doesn't take long. It's really, really powerful. And it, it, it kind of sucks. Like it's kind of uncomfortable to go through that. But they feel like it's the most powerful meeting they have. So it's not so much that, that you can do it in a way to avoid the pain, but you can get habituated to the pain by doing it over and over again. It's not that different than a physical workout. You know, the first time you go to uh, to a to a you know CrossFit or to a to some sort of weight training class, it hurts a lot. And the the tenth time you go, it hurts less. So, and that hurt actually is a sign that you're getting better. It's not right. a sign that you're that you're messing up. That there really is a no pain, no gain when it comes to creating trust and cooperation. What kinds of signs would you look for if you were interviewing for a position in a particular corporation? What what are the signals that you would be on the lookout for to see if this might be a good fit for you or might be a bad fit for you? I'd start with, I'd ask two questions. The first question I'd ask is, tell me a story about something that happens with this group that doesn't happen anywhere else. Ooh, I love that. Very, very yeah. simple question, but it really gets to the heart of it. Yeah. Right? And then the next thing I would ask is, what gets rewarded around here? What really gets rewarded around here when we when you get down to it? And then the third thing I do is I I go talk to a bunch of people who just left. Right? I would ask <laughs> to talk to a bunch of people who just left and see how how happy they were to connect me to them. Um, because really, good good groups, strong cultures, really extraordinary strong cultures are thrilled to have you talk to anybody who's been there because they typically handle the offboarding in a way that is connective, supportive. They acknowledge that, you know, you don't have a job for life um, and they usually want to help their people out in their next step. So um, I would say those three things would be a good place to start. I also loved um, a blog post that you did recently about how to make meetings better and something that people look forward to. Can you explain that a little bit to our audience? Well, yeah, with, with, uh, with, with some meetings, I think there was there was something that uh, that I saw a lot of a lot of good leaders do, which was um, they would they would have a little a little move beforehand. They would have a cheat sheet um, going into it, a real simple cheat sheet that usually reminded them to make sure that the least powerful people talked first. That sends in most meetings of most eight person meetings when when they when you study them, you see that usually three people talk 80% of the time. Interesting. That's just because we're wired for status. We are absolutely wired to pay attention to, to those sorts of things. So smart leaders fight that by making sure that less powerful people are given opportunities early on to share. And if they're smart about it, they usually give that less powerful person a heads up that they might get called on or that they would like them to share going into it. So they, they stage manage it a little bit, but for a, for a noble end of really trying to create an atmosphere where everyone can have a voice. What should you do if you just don't feel good about the team you're on or, or the group that you're working with? Yeah, there's, there's a, there's a, well, answer a pull, pull the rip cord. If it's really bad and toxic, you, that, that's not a bad, never a bad option. Um, but, a more practical one might be to, to follow a plan that um, the design firm IDEO does with each of their teams. They have a series of meetings, and they're pre-flight, mid-flight, and post-flight. And they're almost as if you're taking a, a journey together as a crew of a, of a jet airplane. And 
in, and what those meetings are designed to do is to do a couple of things. First, to kind of highlight the reason people are excited to be part of this group. Why are we here? What are we doing? What excites us the most about this? And then secondly, it's designed to bring attention to how we're going to interact together. To talk about that explicitly, to bring that to the surface. How are we going to interact? What are our expectations going to be? And another tool that I've seen people use is to deliver their coworkers or their teammates an operating manual for dealing with me. Like, if we're going to work on this team together, here's what you need to know about me. I hate answering emails after 9 o'clock at night. I love waking up in the early morning and taking a run, whatever it might be. But that, that idea where you need to bring some of that stuff, you need to surface it and, and bring it up to the surface so that people can figure out how they're going to navigate relationships with each other. All great teams prioritize the relationships with each other. And so finding ways to have that conversation of what are we about and how are we going to treat each other is a good way to start. Something that I really got from your book is that culture is to blame for so many issues at companies, so many major issues. And you see a lot of stocks falling in big companies and scandals happening. If you were to give advice to a company to improve their culture in one way that would help everything else, what would that be? Wow, you guys ask good questions on this. Ooh, <laughs> we like to hear that. <laughs> In one way, I'm going to say that it, it is that it's about it's going to get down to vulnerability. It's going to if there was one way, it would be to establish the habit of vulnerability top to bottom in your in your company. And by establish the habit, I mean kind of operationalize it through a habit like an AAR. Now, maybe that that would be it. I would say have AARs, have real AARs. Um, after any important any important task that you do together, where after action review, you simply circle up and you say, hey, what, what went well, what didn't go well, and what are we going to do differently next time? And it's a short meeting. It's actually kind of funny, but we just I, I do some work with the Cleveland Indians, and we had this event where we brought in some Navy SEALs. We brought in some surgeons from the Cleveland Clinic and as an idea exchange. And as part of that, the surgeons had the SEALs watch an operation. And these are some of the best surgeons in the in the world. And they did this operation, and then the SEALs watched, and then the surgeons, 11-person operation, very intricate. And the surgeon said, hey, SEALs, what did you guys notice? And they said, we can't believe you guys did this, and then you didn't talk to each other afterwards. Like, it's so basic. Mm-hmm. Sort of, you just did this incredibly intricate thing together Um and all kinds of stuff happened. Like, how do you know what went well? How do you know what, what you're going to do differently next time? How do you know what didn't go well? So this, this, this idea of the AAR, that would be the one thing that I would, that I would spread. And to actually, to the surgeon's credit, um, they, they said, yeah, you're right. We should start to do that. It's a no-brainer. Who do you most admire in terms of being able to lead and having a great corporate culture? And you can pick more than one if you want. <laughs> Yeah, um, man, oh man. I think, I think Ed Catmull at Pixar is pretty incredible. I think that the people at the Cleveland Indians are, are incredible, actually. They're not in the book, but I've worked with them for five years and I think they do an, an amazing job of creating that. Uh, into Chris Hansetti and Mike Chernoff are two of them, but of course it's a, it's a big group effort. Um, yeah, I guess the thing that I've really taken away is that there's probably, you know, because culture is about the interactions, it's about the space between people. What you end up with are these, you know, these rather than one leader that you admire, you end up kind of admiring these teams. You know, there's not one seal I admire. There's there's a bunch of them that work together who are incredible together. And so 
that's what's kind of uh, inspirational about it, I guess. It, it shows that you're not trying to have some magical thing alone. You're trying to kind of have interactions with people that generates that magical thing that isn't really magic. And Dan, our show is called Nobody Told Me, as you know. And at the end of each show, we like to ask our guests, what is your nobody told me lesson? So what could nobody have told you about building culture before you started researching for the book, The Culture Code? Yeah, nobody told me that you really had to be, uh, you know, incredibly vulnerable in order to build trust. I, I always took it the other way. I thought you had to kind of build up trust and then you could be vulnerable. But nobody told me that. Being vulnerable together is like the most powerful thing you can do to build relationships. Fascinating. How can people contact you on social media? Uh, I have a website at danielcoil.com, and on there is a, a link to send me a, send me a note or, or whatever. There's a lot of stuff on there that people can play with and enjoy, hopefully. Well, Dan, we have so enjoyed this conversation with you, and we're really glad to have had you on the show and hope we can have you on again really soon. Love it. Well, we'll, do, we'll, we'll do chapter two. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. Our thanks to our guest, best-selling author Daniel Coyle. His latest book is called The Culture Code, The Secrets of Highly Successful Groups. His website is danielcoyle.com. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. You're listening to Nobody Told Me. Thank you so much for joining us. 